Welcome to episode number 86 of the Inspirational Athletes Podcast here on the Always Lancaster Podcast Network. I'm your host, John Walk, sports reporter for LNP Newspaper and LancasterOnline.com, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. On this week's show is guest Todd Mealy. Uh, man, I've been trying to get him. Uh, well, I, I've had him on my list of potential guests for a while, and I've kind of just been waiting until the school year finally wraps up and the summer's here to to get him in here to sit down. Um, those of you might know uh, Mr. Mealy for, for being a, a local football coach. He was a former uh, assistant at McCaskey and then became the head football coach for seven seasons from 2007 through 2014 at Penn Manor. Um, then got out of coaching for a little bit to focus on a doctorate degree and being a father. Uh, he's also a teacher, history teacher at Penn Manor. Um, and then he, he returned to the sidelines the last couple of years as an assistant coach with Lancaster Catholic. Uh, lo and behold, um, longtime Lancaster Catholic head coach Bruce Harbach retires, and now Todd Mealy uh, slides into that role now this coming 2018 season as the Crusaders' new football coach. We chat about all that, kind of his his playing background. He was a state runner-up and state title winner as a linebacker for the Bishop McDevitt football team in Harrisburg back in the 90s, and his transition to coaching, what he's learned there. But... Um, one of the main reasons that I had him on here, uh, he has a new book out. Um, that's right. Coach Mealy, not only is he a, a football coach, a teacher, a father, um, also just got a doctorate degree from Penn State. Um, he's also an accomplished author. I believe this is his fourth or fifth book. Um, it's his first, I guess, sports book, essentially. Um, and it's called Glenn Killinger, All-American, Penn State's World War One Era Sports Hero. Um, but it's more than just sports. It's uh, Well, he does a good job of explaining it, but uh, Glenn was – the Penn State football quarterback, um, the 1910s, I guess you would say, uh, around the time that World War One started up and kind of, you know, him being a, a history buff, he intersects kind of what's going on in the world at that time with World War One starting and uh, how it impacted uh, just the sports and culture and, and how Glenn played a factor in that with, with Penn State. And it's really a fascinating book. I'm, I'm 90 pages in and Man, um, I think you, you guys will really, really enjoy this conversation. Um, there's a lot we could learn from uh, Coach Mealy on how he's so successful in juggling so many things. And then, by the way, um, credit to him. This is the longest podcast recording that we've had, and I really, really encourage you guys to stick around for it. I know I usually go around 30 to 40 minutes, but we went an hour plus this time just because there's a lot to get to between him playing and coaching and, and being an author and what this book is about. Um, but also we talked near the end, he, he powered through this, um, for three years now, coach Mealy has been battling vocal paralysis. He's had three surgeries on his throat. Um, and basically every time he talks, he's in pain. Um, and he talks a lot about that the last 10, 15 minutes of this podcast. So just kind of keep that in mind. Uh, my apologies to coach Mealy for making him talk so much, but man, what a, what a warrior battling through that. Um, but anyway, one last programming note before we move forward here. If you guys like what you hear, feel free to subscribe, go on iTunes or Google play search, always Lancaster inspirational athletes. Hit this, uh, hit the subscribe button. All right. With all that out of the way onto our conversation with Todd Mealy. Enjoy. So my wife, um, we're in the middle of June, and my wife is in administration in the Penn Manor School District, and she was just recently hired as the assistant principal at Hambright. So we're very, very proud of her uh, with that accomplishment. So she's still working. Uh, so I have the two kids at home, and uh, on workout days, I, I take them with me, and the, and the players at Lancaster Catholic are very good about it. You know, they, I told them the other day, you know, they help me and the other coaches who have young kids raise our kids work out days like out on the field <laughs> yeah, or at the yeah. gym or whatever well both in the weight room and then we're on the field so yeah. it's it's uh it's a long and hot three hours for my young ones uh but anyway so we so i have the kids in the morning and then we zip the harrisburg to do the good day pa show on abc 27 right. um and uh, amy kem is the host of the show and she's i had my two kids with me you know just because i didn't want to inconvenience someone else with babysitting and so I took him into the studio, and she said, "Hey, if we have if we have a moment at the end, I'll get him on TV." And we, literally, she gave us two seconds. So my kids got two seconds of airtime, but my four-year-old Carter is now a TV star. Right? Yeah. So, and when he—that's uh, how we'll tell the story. When Todd came here today he, uh, with with his two boys, his mom was was here waiting to pick him up and and asked Carter, "Hey, were you on TV?" And man, that that smile that he had yeah. on his face that made his day. I'm yeah. sure he's not going to forget about. Yeah, and then that. we and then we zip back back to Lancaster right after in time for this. So that's that's awesome. And by the way, I want to give a shout out. Your wife Melissa was telling me um, usually during the school year, one of your babysitters, Elaine Reinier, yeah. um, 
Okay, so her one of her sons, Shane, was actually on this podcast like a year or so ago. Yeah. He was a head coach at a D3 men's soccer program. She was just telling me he's now moved up to a, an assistant at a D1 program yeah. somewhere. So I'm going to have to follow up on that. So shout out to Eileen. Sure. Elaine. Um, yeah, I, I, just to kind of give people an idea of like, yeah, you have a book out, but it also consists of a press tour, and, and you're also a football coach right now. Okay. Um, just now that people know that, I want to go back a little bit, and then we'll get back into the book. Um, I want to go back to your, your playing days. Uh, okay. Bishop McDevitt, you're from Harrisburg, okay. on a state runner-up and a state title team. Um, linebacker? Yeah, I was an inside linebacker. Did you play with your brother? Played with my brother. Okay. He's 18 months older and uh, just one class. Okay. Because he's the athletic director there now. He's right? now the athletic director. He's been he's been the AD there th- since uh, I think 2005. All right. And uh, what what years were that? The last so, two years that you played there. Well, I graduated in the sp- in the spring of '97. So my last fall was '96. Okay. Uh, my brother is a year ahead, um, so I had one year without him. Um, but our state title team was not the fall of 95, uh, so we won a state title that year. And I imagine there had to be some talent on there. Is there any names oh, yeah. that like went on to play like big-time college ball or pro ball that we know of? Well, um, we had one that went to Notre Dame, Rakai Nelson, the receiver who wow. played, uh, played for Lou Holtz. He um, was recruited by Lou Holtz. Uh, and then uh, Corey Dibler went to Bucknell. Okay. Um, <clears throat> he's back living in the area now. In fact, they both are. Uh, we had Rakai made a big 33. Our quarterback, who's also corner, uh, Jordan Scott, who went to Bloomsburg. Okay. Um, he, you know, he was a big 33 player as well. Wow. Um, you know, we had uh, that. Those were the seniors. Those in my brother's class. Um, my class, we had a, a, a guy named Steve Spoljerick, um, who went to Fordham. All right. Uh, we had a, he was as a lineman. We had a lineman underneath me, uh, uh, Mike Jamison, who went to Duquesne. Um, did you play any other sports coming up through? Well, so growing up, I played baseball and basketball. Um, I tried I tried to play some basketball in high school, but in the end, I ended up not playing. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, while playing, though, I was one of those guys that sat on the bench, and when I had an opportunity to get in the game, right. I was taking shots. Um, so. so the reason I ask that everybody knows you, well, a lot of people know you today as a coach, but in terms of uh, getting into sports, it, it did a lot for me just in terms of teaching me things about work ethic and overcoming sure. obstacles and this and that. I'm curious now being a coach as far as like what it did for you kind of looking back, like if you didn't have football or baseball, like I don't like where would you be at in your life or what did it do for you? Well, you know, that's a thought provoking question because <laughs> um I also have a sister and um you know we grew up we were, my brother and i were born in bradford pa okay um and you have bradford high there and then you have hunting and fishing um and a lighter factory right uh crude oil factories so but we moved to harrisburg when i was when i was five <clears throat> um so number one you, my environment kind of put me in a put me in a setting where at least at least my brother and I were living in the city and played summer league basketball and had a bunch of friends that were involved in sports my dad you know played football himself at Bradford High uh, was on an all-star team with Tony Dorsett wow yeah um, and uh good stuff and you know he coached us in both soccer and baseball his dad coached my grandfather coached uh football so we we came from the family you know so i, I didn't have the kind of experience where there was no one in the family that, that was involved in sports and i had right. you know it was it was something outside um familial bonds that, that got me interested so third generation coach yeah wow mm-hmm. all right yeah. so that makes total and sense and my brother as well so yeah yeah what sports does he coach in? so he's the head track coach at bishop mcdevitt now right. yeah and he's the assistant football coach there so he's yeah. I mean, he's coached football since he graduated from college he graduated from lvc right. in 2000 i can't say like i've 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 spoken to him one-on-one before i've just like in this line of work i've yeah. just seen him at so many different events and places over the years and yeah whatnot, he gets around so. sweet guy yeah. Yeah. um <laughs> all right so bachelor's degree in secondary education history sure. at millersville um, that's kind of, I imagine, what brought you to the area, just as far as Lancaster County. Yeah. Um, and in terms of coaching, like, when does that bug get in you? When do you know that's that's what you want to do? Well, I didn't choose college um, to play football. Uh, if I was looking at, if I was going to play 
if I was eager to play football in college, I probably would have went to Lycoming. Uh, and it would have worked out for me because they won a state title. Would have been my freshman year. <laughs> or no, I said state title. Right, National yeah. championship would have been my freshman yeah. year. Um, uh, but I chose Millersville uh, really because of um, uh, academics. But there, there was a professor there that I w- wanted to take um, who, uh, who, you know, I kind of brown, brown-nosed a little bit and got in his good graces, and he and I have remained friends ever since, Matt Pinsker, who's from this area. Wow. Uh, and he's now a professor at Dickinson. Um, but I wanted to sit in his classes. Uh, and um, so I went to Millersville and played one year of football uh, for Carpenter. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, wow, uh, you played for Carpenter. Yeah, awesome. it was just a year. And okay. I, I um, never actually saw any time. Okay, you know, I, but still. Uh, in, in, my, in my freshman year of college. And then I wanted to travel. So uh, I looked into a broad pro- study abroad programs and um, doing that there was a there was a high probability that would interfere with uh, with playing football and okay. but again I made that choice before I went to college. Um, I'm a I like to put a lot of thought in, into And you're a big thing. traveler from what your wife is telling me so that's no surprise that you yeah. wanted to do all and that. Yeah. I, I ended up doing a study abroad experience but um, uh, when I finished playing the defensive coordinator at Bishop McDevitt when I was there became the head coach at McCaskey, Scott Feldman. And um, he said, well, if you're not playing, do you want to coach? I mean, it's a 15-minute drive from Millersville. All right. And I yeah. said, yeah. So I started coaching football in 98. Oh, wow. So you were like a sophomore at Millersville. Sophomore then. at Millersville. Yeah. And um, as a freshman coach. And I did that until 2000. It was a really good staff Feldman put together. Um, Damian Henry. I uh, was on the staff who's uh, kind of a local legend <clears throat> as a McCaskey football player. Just one of those things of like, okay, I played, I'm pretty good at it. Let me see if I can do as well as a coach then or just kind of give this a shot and see where it goes, I guess. Or? Well, I, st- I still I, I still loved football, okay. um, but I wanted to yeah, I wanted to coach it because of the cerebral part of it. Um, and I can still do all the academic stuff that you, I, I probably couldn't do if I were playing. Or at least it would be difficult to do if I were playing. You know, but I ended up being on a coaching staff that had Damian Henry, who's now the head track coach at Coatesville, and um, Matt Ortega, who's the head football coach at, at Coatesville, and, um, you know, Scott Feldman, uh, Mark Stauffer, who's the offensive line coach at Cocalico. Wow. It was a real – Pete Susie, who's the head baseball coach in, wow. in, um, right. in Downingtown. <laughs> coaches football. Co- yeah, it was, it was really good and beneficial for me. I started out as a freshman coach in that staff, and when Matt Ortega left – in 2002 or th- 2002 or three, I took over the defensive coordinator job and I was 23 years old. And you were also, were you like part strength coach too? I became, yeah. So that was, we had a strength coach who's now with us at Lancaster Catholic helping out when he can, Russ McDonald, um, uh, who, you know, was a guy that, you know, was working for the, you know, tried to get in the Olympics and has competed internationally, powerlifting and, and Olympic lifting. Um, but he was the strength coach at McCaskey. He left to go to Penn Manor. Yep. I took over his job. He trained me. So I was coaching football, teaching there, and the strength coach, strength and conditioning coach. And then I kind of followed him to Penn Manor in 2007. Right. He was our strength coach there. And then he stopped doing that in 2010, and now he's with us at Catholic. So a couple things there. Um, Russ McDonald, former uh, podcast guest on here, so feel free to, uh, to search that out. He now has his own gym at I guess it's 40th Fit um, yeah. or Fitness. Sorry, Russ. Um, it's off the uh, Roarstown Road exit Route 30. Um, he's awesome. He's a great guy. He has a good story, too. Um, the reason I bring that up, <clears throat> the first time you and I met, you probably don't even remember, uh, I was still in high school. Lancaster Sunday paper, they still have it. It's called something different, but it's called Freestyle, where it's one page in the Sunday paper. Everything that's written on that one page is by teenagers from high school. And uh, I was a young buck. I had no clue what I was doing. I decided to do a story on, like, student-athletes and what they were doing during that summer in terms of training, what, what goes into training at, at, at weight rooms. And one of the places I stopped by was at McCaskey. And you happened to be there. And I'm embarrassed now because, like, I was so scared of, like, actually talking to people and interviewing people that I handed out paper questionnaires instead. Um, but that's the first time that you and Wait, I What met. year was this? Yeah. Uh, probably summer of 04, 05, okay. maybe. So you were a few years out of college and, yeah. and at McCaskey at that time. <laughs> so it's been a, a journey for the both of us, for sure. Um, yeah, in terms of uh, going from McCaskey to Penn Manor, there's a lot of questions I want to ask you there, but it, 
initially like why decide to take that leap of like okay i think i'm ready now to take over this big time program as a, a head coach well i going back to high school i always wanted to be a coach i wanted to coach football mm. um so that's one thing that feldman was getting me ready to do you know he gave me the responsibility to, to coordinate a defense at 23 and he, you know, he looked over me at my shoulder as I did it, and um, you know, I took lumps along the way. And uh, he actually did something really good. And he doesn't, he didn't do it intentionally. But uh, one year, my head coach at McDevitt came and coached with us at McCaskey, which was, which was Fort Chapman. And uh, I was a DC, and I have here my defensive coordinator as a head coach, and my former head coach <laughs> is now helping me coordinate the defense. And what a blessing! Yeah, yeah. at, at 23, 24 years old. Uh, and I'm one that, that handles constructive criticism well. Um, uh, so that was such a, um, an important learning experience for me, and it allowed me to grow at a young age and get experience. So really age doesn't make a difference anymore. It's just I have the experience of seasoning um, to, to take on the responsibility you know, by 27 to manage a, a football program. And you know, uh, you, you know, you're a sports journalist, so I think you get the notion of what I'm about to say here is though that every football coach that has run a program has a bond, a certain bond. So what I'm getting at is Bob Forgrave preceded me, or Jim Forgrave, Bob yeah. Forgrave preceded me at Penn Manor, and um, he and I got along pretty well. You know, even though he left to go, you know, coach at a rival school, one thing he did well that I probably wouldn't have managed well at that age was a booster club. You know, he really put into place for the coach that succeeded him a booster club that by the time I left was, you know, had something like $40,000 in a bank account, you know, every year at the end of every season. You know, those parents really get after it there, and they take pride in that. That's something that, that is really his legacy. Um, you know, with the way he ran the boosters. But apart from that, you know, I think I think that Chapman and Feldman um, did right by me in terms of giving me responsibility, delegating responsibility to me and saying that, I, I you know, at, at the age of 27, I could manage a program. And to give people some context here, um, kind of coming up through myself, Penn Manor football for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. Um, <laughs> terrible at football, always the doormat of the league. Um, I think there was a stretch from like 93 to the early 2000s where they didn't win a game. I still remember vividly of making Penn Manor making ESPN because they had like the longest losing streak of any high school football team. Um, my I, senior year would have been 05, fall of 05. Uh, the Comets go five and five, the first like nine losing season sure. in 20 plus years. Sure. Um, and that was under coach Bob Forgrieve. Uh, I think that was his first year with Penn Manor. Yeah. And then uh, he coaches the next few seasons and, and a couple winning seasons there. Um, so then Coach Mealy comes in. Um, first year, what was it, 09, 10? Seven. Oh, seven. Wow, it was even earlier. Four graves there were two right. years. Two years. Yeah. Um, and you got Penn Manor goes one and nine that first year. Right. Um, yeah, that's tough. But I wanted to, to mention, like, Penn Manor had this losing culture for years and years, and, and Bob Forgrave comes in and, and kind of – Turns it around a little bit. So then that, that one and nine in your first season, it's like, oh, no, I don't want Penn Manor to go backwards again. I'm kind of curious if that was in the back of your mind at all. I know there was other things as far as you trying to improve as a coach, but I didn't sure. know if that any pressure on you to make sure they didn't go back down that, that black hole again. Well, you know, there's a lot of history there. Um, you, you mentioned from 93 to, to 05, they had, they, did, they had a number of zero-win seasons, right. including 33 straight losses, which hit Sports right. Center. But they had a couple two and three win seasons, so that was like they had no yeah. during that stretch they didn't have a winning season. Um, Forgrave goes five and five and then five and six, and he makes playoffs, okay. right? And they yeah. lose in playoffs to Mifflin yeah. in '06. And I applied for the job in '05, didn't get it. Forgrave oh. got it. All right, I was 25. Terrible interview. <laughs> I was a young pup, Aren't you know, trying to play with yeah. the big dogs at the time, and uh, you know he left and. I'm humbled by this and very grateful. And I, I, I told um, Penn Manor's newly retired athletic director, Jeff Roth, how grateful I was last day of, of school, you know, um, as we were acknowledging the retirees, that he, he reached out to me and said, would you, would you apply again, consider um, applying for the job? Wow. 
and the conversation I was having with my coaching friends was, you know, you go to Penn Manor, which has this history, and you go two and eight, three and seven, three and seven, you're out. You want to be head coach, but you may not get that shot again. So that was risky. Um, but um, we, we decided to do it. And uh, when we get there in that first year, it was tough because of the way that Coach Forgray left. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people were mm -hmm. upset. Mm -hmm. um, so that first, I think James Franklin experienced this his first year at Penn State. And a lot of Penn State fans didn't understand the kind of bond that players and parents have to the original coach and not the new guy coming in. So we had to deal with that conflict, that kind of dysfunction the first year. And then those seniors graduated. And then from there on, it was us. You know, the, and this coaching staff that was with me in 07 and then in 08 is now with me at Lancaster Catholic. So we stayed together. And, that became, and then it became our program at that point because everyone was so young. You know, that, that first year there, there was only eight seniors on that 07 team. So there was only eight seniors, eight families that kind of played and bonded with the previous coach where everyone else was all kind of new to them. So they became ours quickly. Uh, and that's why I think was we were able to, in a matter of one year, really turn that program around. Just a couple more questions about coaching. I promise I'll get to the book here. Yeah, um, sure. So from year one, year two at Penn Manor, uh, comments go from one and nine to then second year, uh, nine wins, first winning season in who knows how long at Penn Manor. Nine wins, I think, was the most uh, yeah, for most program yeah. uh, history to that point. First uh, playoff win. The question I want to ask you there, like, it's probably not just talent, what you have on the football field. I know you mentioned only eight seniors your first year, so you probably brought a lot back that second year, but more so coaching. Um, how do you go about from year one to year two? Like, it's not just talent that improved it. I imagine it had to be coaching. Was the full staff? Was it yeah. just you? Was it a different way that you ran your program? Like, what do you accredit to turning that, turning that second year around, I guess? Oh, so I know you, you're, you're limited on time here. That's a yeah. loaded question. Sorry. You know, that, that's fine. But you're asking me a question about vision here. And yeah. so I kind of internalize this as the five C's um, in coaching, culture, consistency, um, compete, competitiveness, uh, coaching, and care. And culture is the big one. It is the first one. And whether it was Penn Manor or now Lancaster Catholic, I said to parents and my coaching staff, my priority is, is culture, establishing the culture. Because uh, X's and O's don't sustain programs, the culture does. You know, every team works as hard as we do. Right. Every team has the same goals that we do. So what's going to distinguish us and our success from every one of our opponents and it's going to be the culture, the kind of th the things that define us. And what that allows us to do then, if people buy into that, that, pro that, 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 that um, ideal, that, that culture, is then consistency. And, and with consistency, that's multifaceted because now you're talking consistency with messaging coming from the coaches. You know, um, the, the coaches have a kind of transformative message to these kids. Uh, here's what it takes to, to win. Um, here's how we need to commit. So you have consistency with messages, with messaging, but you also have that with success. So North Carolina doesn't win a national title every year, but they're considered one of the best programs around because they're always competitive. They're always able to compete for it. So in our mind, we have these goals where we want to win section championships and, and district championships and hopefully be able to play for a state title. Um, but we want to be there every single year, no matter the talent that we have to be able to compete for a section championship. And, and you asked me about Penn Manor, and I think that was something that we were able to do. Like the coaching staff, we were able to pull out every iota of talent from those kids and, and get them to play better than their best, which ironically is a theme if you want to transition right. to the book. That's a Glenn Killinger mantra, um, to get them to play better than their best. And, and we had you know, success with that. Yeah. But um, we try to compete daily uh, in everything, whether it's in the weight room or taking a foul shot in the gym or grades. So we always try to compete at everything we do um, uh, co with, the, with the, uh, the coaching staff. I guess the idea is to keep the coach staff consistent and, and keep them hungry. So we want them to go to coaching clinics and continue to learn and grow as, as professionals, yeah. um, but also give them responsibility to give them energy. And I, then, I, could, I could talk to you about yeah. all that for like another hour. Well, that's why I say it was loaded, so, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. No, you did a good job handling <laughs> that. I just wanted to mention – 
Um, mention one thing and then ask you one more thing, and then we'll get on to the book, mm -hmm, I promise mm -hmm. here. Uh, under Mealy's direction, Penn Manor maintained a collective 3.4 grade point average for its football team, um, and the comments over his eight seasons ranked fourth in victories among District 3 Class Quad A teams. Uh, back when there were only four classifications. Uh, Penn Manor went 56 and 35 under Mealy and advanced to the postseason each of uh, his last seven seasons there at the helm. 2014 uh, campaign was his last at Penn Manor. At the time, was quoted saying, okay, I want to take a break. I want to have kid. Um, we're starting up a family. I want to pursue doctorate degrees. My wife does as well. Um, I think it's a year or two later. I'm covering a game at Lancaster Catholic, uh, like week one or week two. I'm like, oh, there's Todd Mealy in the sidelines. That's interesting. He's only away for a year or two, I guess. Um, and then now becoming, again, a head coach, uh, going into the 2018 season at Lancaster Catholic as the Crusaders' new football coach, uh, why decide to become a head coach again? Because um, it's—I know you and you and Melissa just both wrapped up your doctorate degrees, but Correct. you have a four-year-old and a one-year-old at home. You're teaching. You're working on another book, um, and here you are being a head coach again. And I just wanted to, to ask you real quick, just as far as why I decide to to get back into it. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> if you go back and, and read the articles. Uh, when I stepped down at Penn Manor, I said in there that You're gonna be I'll be head out of here. Well, yeah, I said yeah. I'll be, I, I do aspire to be head coach again, and I'll probably be out one year because with my doctoral program at, at Penn State, I had to fulfill a residency requirement, and that meant I had to be a full-time student for, for a year, a fall, spring, semester, summers don't count. Right. And so, you know, you might be familiar with this, but graduate classes are in the evenings. Um, and to be a full-time student, you have to take at least nine credits. Mm. So that's three nights a week I would be gone. So I couldn't go to practice three nights a week. So I couldn't be a head coach yeah. and do that. And getting a PhD was really important to me. Like coaching is something I've always wanted to do. I take, you read the, the GP. I mean, we, we, we take academics seriously. Yeah. At Penn Manor, we did. Here at Catholic, we, we will. Um, <clears throat> So I just physically, I, I could not coach uh, or be a head coach that year. Uh, and then um, the opportunity presented itself uh, after the, you know, the 2015 football season to get back into coaching in, in 2016. So position opened up at Lancaster Catholic. Um, Bruce uh, reached out to me, said, are you interested in calling the defense? And I said, certainly I am. And um, so that's kind of how I ended up at Catholic. Wow. Uh, it just kind of it, it kind of fell in my lap. Fortunate that it fell in my lap there. And then, uh, um, have you been doing defense or offense? Defense. Like, okay. Yeah, defense. All right. Um, is that your specialty? Forgive me for being ignorant. I'm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is my specialty. Right. The, the uh, but even at Penn Manor, um, we don't have an offensive staff or defensive staff. We we coach both sides of the ball, and that's that's me. Head wow. coach included. So I coach a position on defense. I coach a position on offense. Right. Um, our offensive coordinator coaches a position on defense. I called the D defense at Penn Manor and you know, Catholic last two years. Still coach a position on offense. So uh, we don't we don't split like that. Um, therefore, there, there's not a divide on the coaching staff either. We're all responsible for how well the defense does, or how poorly the defense does, or how well an offense does. So. Therefore, there's no finger pointing in, in division within the, within the coaching staff. Right. Um, all right. The reason Todd's here, uh, well, one of the reasons Todd's here, but the main reason for me anyway, is a new book out. Uh, fourth or fifth book for you? Oh, fifth. Okay. So a handful of books so far in yeah. your career, um, and you're working on another one. But uh, this one's called Glenn Killinger, All-American, uh, Penn State's World War World War One Era Sports Hero. Um, first off, and I know I've been and, and asking you tough questions here just as far as like, hey, can you wrap this up in a nutshell for me? <laughs> yeah. But uh, when you tell people about this book, what's the, the promotional thing? Like, what's this book about? Uh, I don't talk about Killinger. Like, he's not, <laughs> he's on the cover. He's, his name's in the title. But when I, you're, when I talk to people about the book, what I talk to them is more about a, it's a cultural study. Mm -hmm. So it's part biography, part, part cultural history. So what I do is I use Killinger's life to explain two things. The World War I environment on the home front and how sports are intertwined and even pivotal um, in transitioning for the war. And then the second part 
is what is produced by that wartime environment in the 1920s. Right. So, uh, and this is something the publisher took out. Uh, I have no control over that, but um, that gives me something to talk about when I go and, and lecture on the book. Uh, but what, I, what, what can be um, inferred by the reader is that um, a, a number of different wartime transitions, uh, we can talk about those if you, yeah, yeah. If you want to ask me. Uh, what they ultimately do is create America's first uh, celebrity in the 1920s. You know, as a history teacher, and any any listeners that you have that are that are uh, history teachers, they identify the 1920s as a decade of the American hero. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Textbooks don't do a good job at explaining well why, why is it the 20s? Mm-hmm. Um, other than say, look, there's a little there, there's new modes of media, mass media, the radio, um, newsreels. Uh, silent film, you have that, but they don't explain well. You had these transitions right. that involved sports during the war. They got that got people so kind of uh, people so fascinated with athletics, and all of a sudden it wasn't really the Hollywood movie stars, but it was the these athletes, these these college football players, and then professional baseball players, and then some tennis and others that kind of became the celebrity. Um, uh, in the 1920s, and uh, if we can get into the yeah, details yeah. of all this, you see how that has implications to American society today. Because we, even in the 2018, we 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 find and define our own heroes. So we, as citizens of this country, right. choose why this particular person is our role model, right. or is someone we want to use to endorse a product. So there's all that, all all those things started in the 1920s, and we're seeing that play out today. And I'm definitely going to get to that to give people an idea, uh, just in terms of, of Glenn. He's from Harrisburg, yeah. um, so it was no surprise. Just like initially reading this, like, oh, no wonder Todd's from there. And sure. You found him through. You found this story through the last book that you were working on. Uh, two books ago. Okay, <laughs> and I imagine it was just like kind of like looking at microfilm and and like oh, this name yeah. popped up. Here's this Penn State football. Po- oh, he's from Harrisburg. Yeah. Just one of those deals, and just kind of pocketed that. Yeah, you have to remember my my degree and most of my academic background is in like civil rights history, race theory. Right. So I'm, out, I'm kind of out of my comfort zone with a book like this one. Sports history, believe it or not, being a coach. Um, but uh, two books ago, I, I, I did a book for Arcadia Publishing, which was kind of my foray into to popular history. Mm-hmm. Um, and they asked me to research 120 legends from Central PA, from Harrisburg to be more specific. Mm-hmm. Killinger came up uh, in that project because he... Uh, though born in Harrisburg, was known later on in life and probably is known most in this area for having coached football and baseball at Westchester. There's a dormitory named after him. The scholarship there is named after him. The Athletic Hall of Fame is named after him at Westchester. Like, he's right. a big deal in, in Chester County. Um, so I started to do a little digging and, and learn, uh, wait, he coached football during World War II at the North Carolina Pre-Flight School at Chapel Hill. Not the University of North Carolina, but on that campus, the military kind of co-opted part of the campus and, cre- and created a pre-flight school, and they did this in three other colleges across the country, too. Yeah. And, and they used sports to train World War II soldiers to get ready to fight the Germans and fight the Japanese. And he coached football and baseball at the pre-flight school, and his assistant coach there was Bear Bryant. I'm like, wow, he, <laughs> he, he was the head coach and Bear Bryant was his assistant? I want to look into this. There might be something here. So I look at Bear Bryant's book, um, his memoir, and in the acknowledgments is Glenn Killinger's name. Kind of like Glenn Killinger gave me my my start into, you know, ultimately winning five national titles and whole. So he thanks Killinger, and I'm like, okay, people knew about him. And so I started to do some research. And you mentioned like the microfilm. I looked through um, somewhere close to 90 newspapers in my research when I started out. Uh, some, was, some of it was on microfilm, but look, we live in a digital age, so you can pop on newspapers.com and just type in Glenn Killinger in the search function and get every newspaper in the country uh, throughout the 20, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So I actually did a lot of my research on my couch at home, you know, when the kids went to bed and, my, and Melissa went to bed. I would do all my work at night, and uh, I said, I'm starting, wait, Penn State? He's in the Hall of Fame at Penn State. Let me research the time period that he was there. 
And so he entered Penn State in 1917, the year America entered World War One. Mm -hmm. The war ends a year later, 1918. <laughs> but everyone left Penn State um, after we entered the war to go serve. And he was too young to be drafted, and his parents didn't let him enlist. So he stayed on campus. And with everybody gone, he had all these positions opened on the football team, they opened up, on the basketball team, they opened up, and baseball was probably his best sport. Um, and all of a sudden, he became this three-sport star by the, by the time his career ended. And I'm glad you did a great job, because that's everything I was hoping you would, you would hit on, just as far <laughs> as his background and why he's important. And forgive me, I'm only up to, to page 90 now, so I mentioned that whole uh, coaching era and Bear Bryant and whatnot is probably mentioned. Well, the that's in the epilogue. The, okay, the book is I'll only focused that. on Penn State. Um, so then in terms mm -hmm. of, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, him being at Penn State, uh, World War One starts up. Um, and to give people an idea, one of the themes there is like the American troops, they find that once they're in these camps, they're pretty much, for lack of a better term, they're bored. They need something to focus on. Um, <laughs> so eventually the, the government or what have you decides we're going to, at these camps, have all the... I guess enrollees say, which sports do you like? We'll put them on a sports team. And one, that'll keep them occupied. And two, that'll make them essentially physically fit for battle or for war and whatnot. Um, and I'm, I guess what I'm eventually getting to is like that, you had mentioned it in a couple of the, the pages, I think it's important, is that's where the rise of football happened because yeah. people started taking on, like football became really popular throughout. Could you do what, you could probably do a better job of explaining sure. why that is, I guess is yeah. what I'm getting at. Well, football started as early as 1869. Right. Um, but football is a product of the American frontier. Um, and when the frontier closed uh, after 1890, uh, people started to return east to urban America. And with that, kind of the culture um, of the American people was changing a little bit because in the frontier you kind of have this individual ruggedness that comes from the frontier and that's kind of an attitude that fits the mold of a tough game like football. But in urban America where it's becoming more pluralistic, more multicultural, um, so you have immigrants coming from Eastern Europe, uh, with with this, it's you know more than just Protestants, but you now have Eastern Orthodox Christians, and mm. you you have um, uh, different languages spoken, and that coincides with women gaining more rights in terms of job, more jobs out in the labor force, uh, suffrage. So a lot of men feel that um, they're the, life, the lives that they once had, the lives that they know and comfort, are comfortable with, have been intruded by immigrants right. and women, particularly at the ballot box and at the workplace. Uh, and you also have a generation of men who, are, who have gone through life without experiencing war or working on their feet out on the frontier. So where could these men go to, to kind of go where they're comfortable? Or what they know, and that became the gridiron in, in other places. So, I, I try to get at this in the book, um, this this notion of of football and masculinity. But what's toxic masculinity? Um, and you you can kind of see this play out a hundred years ago, or more than that now, but you know, 110 years ago when the game of football was threatened, because you had a, in 1905 and then again in 1910 you have progressives that are attacking the game. Um, saying it's too violent, people right. are dying playing the game. Do you, you know, John? Do you not yeah. see the yeah. do you not see the echoes yeah. of that? Yeah. You know, in our own contemporary I was, society. I should have marked that page down, but you did a good job of like there was like double digit amount of people dying from playing the sport within one season over yeah. multiple seasons uh, back when before equipment was yeah. even introduced, and it was just barbaric. Well, yeah, like, uh, yeah, helmets weren't mandatory, right? Um, but the you have, to, you have to consider the era because you had the progressive movement taking place as well. You had the child labor laws, the yeah. Pure Food and Drug Act. So people were trying to clean up society, and, and this violent game became part of that. Mm -hmm. And people felt that uh, um, this game was a detriment. It was maiming our men, our young men. It was mm -hmm. killing our young men. Mm -hmm. But the numbers weren't astronomical. They were just happening in places like New York City, 
right. which was a major media market, so it was getting coverage. Okay. And I was getting media attention. And, and with the context of, of 1910s and 1920s progressivism. And you, then you have people step in like Walter Camp and, and President Roosevelt that step in to try to save the game and say, look, this is what makes us tough. So when you apply that to Glenn Killinger's age, like tough masculine, right. be able to withstand the throes of combat and on the Western front. You know, these are people that didn't experience war. They didn't grow up in the frontier. So they're privileged people. So the government, the Wilson administration and the War Department worked with colleges and, and military camps to set up programs like what you were talking about, John, the, the service sports on our military encampments across the country to say to enlistees on your downtime to keep you out of trouble because you can get in trouble on your off hours. You're going to play sports. You choose a sport you want to play. And it's interesting, too, um, and I'll get back on that topic sure. in, a, in a bit. I want to mention I'm, I'm at the point of the book now where uh, Hugo Bezdek becomes a Penn State head coach, and just it's interesting learning his background and learning from uh, Alonzo Stagg and, it's, and Walter Kant and, it, you know, all these names that I hear about growing up and, and now as a sports reporter of, like, the, these are names that are on trophies now, whereas this book, it's like here's – the information about this guy. I didn't realize like Stag played a role in terms of changing or progressing the actual rules of the football game and the forward pass and, and yeah. players going in motion and the uh, snap from the center to the quarterback and this and that. So I think that's just yeah. interesting. Um, but in terms of uh, uh, Glenn Killinger at Penn State, he was a very undersized guy. Uh, well, at least coming out of high school. And then uh, at least the point that I'm getting to now, he's now like 5'9", 155 pounds. Sure. But even back then was relatively small playing quarterback. Um, and I, have, I haven't gotten to the point where he's actually like making a, a great contribution yet to the Penn State team. Um, a lot of the... A lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that, that you briefly mentioned, like he, off the field, like... He seemed to have trouble off the field. Um, and I know you got a lot of uh, – I know you got some of the information from his memoir. Um, but I, that's one of the things, like, I don't know if you had trouble kind of finding information there. But I wanted to ask you, like, have the author in front of me, um, if you can kind of a little bit in a couple minutes just kind of tell, like, he had trouble in the classroom or he was just a troublemaker. And I guess what I'm eventually getting at, like, sports kind of helped focus him. I guess you can't go anyway with that. I'm not asking it the right way, like I want to, but yeah, no, well, I think I know you get I'm, I'm getting at. I guess. Yeah. Um, let me try to hit on all points. Uh, look at the coaching tree. You brought up Stag. So Stag, Bezdek, Killinger. So there's a nice coaching tree to, right. to consider. Um, the. Do you not see the kind of like the the connection with uh, many athletes today that they find an outlet with right. sports? You know, you're just saying, well. Sports were created these camps to keep, you know, servicemen out of trouble. The same notion here. This was a the youngest in his family. He had two two older siblings, mm-hmm. um, and as a, a young one growing growing up and running around the streets of Harrisburg, you know, he got in fights on the streets. He got himself into some trouble. Um, but sports seemed to be the thing that ultimately mm-hmm. would get him out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his problem was he was a shrimp. You know, he was a little guy that couldn't find success in intercla- interscholastic sports. Right. You know, so he was cut from every football team until senior year, even even then at Harrisburg Technical High School, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, right across the street from the Forum Building in, in so the that, city. Okay, I wasn't sure if yeah. that's like named something else. No, today. it doesn't exist. But, right. you know, he, 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 they took him on the team his senior year, but he started one game, which was something like um, – the fifth game of the year, and he got benched at halftime and <laughs> saw very limited time afterward. Okay. Uh, you know, he didn't have success as a high school athlete, and, there, and it, it was okay for him. It was, can I grow up to be one of these ath- professional athletes that I admire, um, reading the newspapers, right. or do I have to go and work in my family business? So there really wasn't anything motivating him when he wasn't making it in sports. Mm-hmm. The war presents it for him you know, when everyone is gone. Mm-hmm. And now he has an opportunity, no matter how big he is, Penn State's just trying to fill a roster. And, and so there's a couple of takeaways from that. Number one, if, you, if you're someone out there that has trouble um, making the right decisions or staying out of trouble, 
you've, sports become an outlet yeah. for you. That's I'm glad. Yeah, that's why I asked you that, just to kind of give it, people an idea of why sports is important. Because football is a, a, a perfect example. It's a great game that's under attack, but we don't look well, at the other and side and of with it. With coaching and yeah. teaching, I work in a profession that's about second chances. Right. Yeah. Right. So even adults make mistakes that teenage kids <clears> make. Yeah, so there's so these these kids today, these 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 teenagers we coach today, they they deserve right. second chances as well. And you never know once that opportunity is out there. Most of the time, those those kids are able to perform. So I'm gonna read a couple uh, paragraphs from the book. I'll give you uh, your voice a break here a little bit. Um, page ten. Uh, the wartime environment paved the way for Killinger to become one of the most formidable quarterbacks ever to play the game at the college level. After having started only one game as a high school player. He would go on there in the starting quarterback position at Penn State in the third game of the 1918 season. And then the very next page, you eventually mentioned, though mostly forgotten in the 21st century, I soon learned that Killinger was one of the most popular athletes in the country, including Jim Thorpe and Babe Ruth during the first five years after World War One. So just to kind of give people an idea, like probably lack of entertainment options too, like baseball and, and um, you know, football and, and whatnot, like those were kind of the – on the forefront in terms of how people are staying entertained during World War One, and maybe that's kind of what led to uh, Killinger's name kind of being out there during its time at Penn State. Is that fair to say? Yes. Now you have to when you when you talk solely about football, professional football was not a big deal. So whoever was the best college football player right. in that era was considered the best football player in the country. And at that time, Jim Thorpe was. I mean, he was out of college. He was, you know, behind his. You know, he's playing professional sports, many of them, mm. but he's typically traveling doing that. Um, but John Heisman, um, as in the Heisman Trophy, coached against Killinger as a player. Yeah. Uh, Heisman at the time was at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he called Killinger the best player in college wow. sports. Um, uh, water camp, you know, gave, made him water camp All-American in 1921, saying you're the best football player in the country at the time. And uh, the Philadelphia uh, Daily News said Killinger's the best running back we've ever seen. Mm. And this was in 1921, after Jim Thorpe had, has, had his time. The thing that, that distinguishes Killinger from everybody else is not, the fact, not only the fact that like, he was always undersized, lightweight, and was able to perform because how fast he was, how cerebral he was, but he redefined the quarterback position. So as you know, as a writer, sports writer, you know how important and how – much of a weapon a dual threat quarterback is in this era in the 1910s early 1920s you're not seeing dual threat quarterbacks yet you're seeing a quarterback as a field general that <clears throat> looks at the defense calls a formation and calls a play but doesn't get the snap he becomes a blocker because right. the idea was someone who's taken a beating running with the ball all the time can't manage the game can't be a field general right and later on, when you're reading a book, I, I talk about the transition with him and a, guy, and a quarterback from Harvard in 1921, who was that kind of field general, really rarely touched the ball. And here you have Killinger that was doing it all. You know, this is also an Ironman football where you played both sides of the ball. And if you, you couldn't come out of the game because if you came out of the game, you had to wait until the next quarter until you can go back into the game. Coaches couldn't coach. So they did all their coaching during the week of practice. And then they depended on that quarterback, that field general, to be the coach on the field because, that, again, Coach Bezdek couldn't make the play calls. So Killinger did all of that. So um, he was a quarterback. He was a running back. He passed the ball. Um, he obviously ran with the ball. He punted the ball. He, he kicked off, kicked extra points and field goals, drop kicked often. All the stuff and then he was a safety just, on yeah, defense. It's just fascinating. Like, uh, you know, loving sports, you know, I love hearing about all that. But then all those guys that you just mentioned of like, hey, this guy was alive. Here's what he was doing. The, uh, intersecting with Killinger. Like, I just love it. Um, I could, because we're pressed on time, sure. I have 8 million other questions I'm going to ask you about. Um, I wanted to, before I forget to another before I get to another topic, one thing I wanted to ask you about this, you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, your love of history, when you're also known for being a history teacher, and you're such a history buff, and you love it there. You had written three or four books prior to this one, all focused on topics from history, um, kind of more political or, mm -hmm. or race um, centric. This was your first sports book, per se. <laughs> right. um, so I'm wondering, your quality of your writing like how did you go about writing a sports book being that you didn't really have much experience from that like were you reading other sports books just trying to get an idea of how to tell the story or was yeah. just basically 
biographical? Like, how did you go about making sure the quality was up to par just as far as being a sports book? I know it's more than that. We've talked about a lot of yeah. being a history based, but I'm curious of your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I appreciate that question. Now, quality of writing, that's why I entered a doctoral program. Okay. <laughs> because I wrote, I wrote a couple um, before I um, entered a uh, doctoral program, and, I, and now I have formal training. So mm. just quality itself, you can see a difference between mm. post, pre-PhD, post-PhD. Um, with sports, this project kind of fell in my lap. Like I didn't go out looking for it, like, I, like the other previous books. Mm. Um, this was something that came up in a previous research project, and then we unearthed the, his unpublished, Killinger's unpublished memoir. Um, and I said, unpublished memoir, that's a, a boon to any research project when you get something firsthand from the person you're writing about. Uh, so I was like, I got to do it. I got to do this one. But I didn't want to just write about Killinger, so I had to find something else. And that's where I came up with the celebrity culture piece mm. and masculinity piece. Um, you were going to say something? No, I was going to say the unpublished memoir you eventually acquired through what his granddaughter is great his granddaughter yeah so okay. when i started the project i called up um westchester's alumni office and said right. because of how well known killinger was known i said hey, by any chance does killinger have any family members still alive and if, if so please pass along my phone number email address a week later i had a phone call from his granddaughter jessica killinger who said hey my father who's glenn's son, son and only child glenn killinger jr is still alive, but he's 84. Um, would you like to meet him? And I said, absolutely. And he was living at Marist Grove Retirement Community in, in Glen Mills. So five or six trips I took out there uh, in 2015 to sit and chat with him. And he passed away in October of 2015. Uh, and, but we had become so close that uh, he had arranged for Jessica to ask me to do the eulogy at his funeral when he passed and in fact my mom just went on a civil rights tour throughout the south and asked jessica killinger to go along with her so the two of them so we've become <laughs> kind of family we've become family throughout this whole jessica comes to family gatherings yes she comes to family gatherings now wow. um and so that's pretty special uh but when her dad passed away she was going through all of his things and she found in one of his boxes at maris grove old Penn State playbooks, football, basketball playbooks, and he found his, this memoir. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Good so, stuff. Yeah. Um, so kind of unrelated topic, but the, I think anybody who's listening to this is known, like you're one who juggles a lot of things right now. Sure. Um, you're a father, a teacher, you're, you love history, you're writing a book, you're pursuing a doctorate degree, which you just completed. Congratulations, Thank by you. the way. But how do you go about juggling so many responsibilities and making sure you're still successful across all these platforms? Yeah. Well, first, um, family. So I have a wonderful wife that, uh, number one, allows me to go off at times and do research, sit in and look at microfilm in a library, uh, go to State College to do the research, go to North Carolina and do the research. Uh, so she, she allows me to get away from the kids sometimes and do that as long as I don't take advantage and, and overdo it. Her dad, my father-in-law, um, Rich Ferricks, who's in education, uh, he would sometimes come and replace me, fill in for me as, as de facto father, you know, with the kids, give her a break when I'm away. My, my family also helps. But second, time management um, is key because, look, when I resigned as a football coach in 2014, after the 2014 season, um, I... Uh, had one young kid at the time and the second one was on the way and my wife was finishing her doctoral work so i knew any free moment i had i can't waste it sitting on a couch watching tv watching a movie i have to work um so like i sacrificed a lot of i sacrificed a lot of personal time social life um i was a big movie buff at one point i stopped that uh because when the family would go down go to bed including my wife who Fortunately, falls asleep around nine o'clock. That gives me a couple hours a night to do some work. She allow, you know, Melissa allows me to sleep in a little bit on the weekends because she knows I'm up late working. You know, but even you know, whenever I have a free moment, it's not 
I'm not going to spoil that time. I'm going to I'm going to take that time and I'm going to I'm going to do whatever I have to do to to, to do a project like yeah, like and, the Killinger. You mentioned Melissa, by the way. You know, she's has a full time physician. She yeah. just completed a doctorate degree, so it's not yeah. like she's just a stay at home mom. Like she's busting her tail too, as her husband's doing the same thing. So yeah. I just think that's that's, and I don't know how you. Okay, it's nine o'clock. I'm going to do a couple hours of work now because if I do that, my brain will just start. The, you, the, you, you condition you know, yourself. The wheels start turning, <laughs> and then by twelve o'clock, I'm like, oh, I got to sit. I, I, you know, the, the ideas are in your brain, and then you have trouble falling asleep. That's it. So, exactly. Yeah. That happens all the time. All right. Yeah. So that's a regular thing for you. Yes. So you probably sacrificed a lot of sleep there too. <laughs> right. Um, all right. So one last topic before we get out of here. Okay. Uh, if people aren't aware of this, um, Coach Mealy this whole time has had basically battling through pain um, in your throat or, or mm-hmm. your voice or whatnot. Uh, before we started recording here, he tells me, hey, I have a vocal paralysis. So I felt bad this entire, this is the longest <laughs> podcast recording that we've done because uh, just for so many topics and sure. I felt bad. I've been trying to talk more on purpose to give you a break a little bit. Yeah. Um, but just give me an idea first off of, of what is vocal paralysis? Uh, so your, your audience can't see what I'm doing with my hands here, but when you speak, your vocal folds they vibrate. Mm. And when, when someone has vocal paralysis, one of their vocal rods is not functioning. So every time I'm not talking, my vocal folds don't shut. And since they don't shut, they don't rest. So I've developed kind of tendonitis in my vocal folds. Uh, but it didn't just start with tendonitis. I remember teaching once in, in um, the winter of 2015 in the middle of class, um, a blood vessel burst in my vocal fold. And I still have the scar when they put the rod down my throat to take a video. You can see it's still red wow. um, from this burst blood vessel. That's when it first started. That's when it first started. So I've been dealing with this since Were 2015. You blood that day in class or something? No, or no. It was just extremely painful. To, yeah, I had okay. trouble talking. I had to shut it down. And, um, Did you go to the ER that day? N- no. I tried, to, you know, I tried to tough through it, which was stupid. <laughs> it was stupid. So I tried to tough through it. Uh, and... So I started to see someone, an ENT doctor, a couple months later when the pain became persistent. So basically, John, every time I talk, it hurts. So I've had, uh, I've, seen, I've gone to Drexel, my doctor's in Drexel, and so is my, my, my vocal therapist. So I get therapy for it as well. And I've had uh, three procedures. Um, two of the procedures have been vocal fold injections. So they've gone down through my mouth to inject um, like a material into the into one of my vocal folds Which does what well it tries to, to fill up the vocal fold so much that my vocal folds will rest when i'm not talking that hasn't worked so just this past um february uh i had a, what's called a thyroplasty which they, they cut me open from the outside right around the adam's apple and they put an implant in the left side of my th- my throat so the left side of my vocal fold as another way to try to get my vocal folds to function properly uh, at this Does point, it hasn't worked. Okay. <laughs> so I, I still deal with it. So when you know, I, I, I choose to, to continue teaching. I choose to continue coaching through it. So when I teach, I teach with a microphone. Um, I have one attached to my collar. When I teach, when I coach, I coach with a bullhorn. Uh, and that's a problem for me because I'm, I'm not a, a yeller, but I'm a, a yeller. In terms of to communicate with a team across a field, I'm not a yeller where I'm in your face yelling is what I mean. So I do have to, you know, um, turn the volume up a little bit and so people hear me. Now I use the bullhorn to do that. I wish I would using the, was using the bullhorn <laughs> to do that years ago. And if there's a coach listening to your podcast, maybe yeah. they can learn from this. Because it's not like yelling so much, I lose my voice, it comes back a week later. Like this is, it seems like it's going to be perpetual. Do you, uh, have you changed your coaching style in any way? To yeah, the I have, and that's tough for me. Yeah, because okay. I'm, 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 I'm just proactive, and I ask my coaches to not let a, 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 a rep go by in practice without you coaching the kids that you're supposed to be coaching, your positions. Everyone has to be coaching on every single rep, and that includes me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've mentioned to you before, I coach positions on both sides. Um, and if I'm not able to do that because of how bad my throat is, like internally, like I feel like I'm letting the staff down and the kids down. Like it's tough for me to really deal with that. Like that's a, you know, that's a mental thing. Will I have you to deal with. purposely set up times during the day or even in the classroom where mm-hmm. okay for X number of minutes I'm not going to talk? Does that? Yeah, help I have at to all? manage my classes okay. much differently. 
Yep. Um, I have to trust coaches to, to do more. Um, you know, things I would typically do in terms of installing um, right. a game plan. I might ask the coaches to do that more. Right now we're talking about me going up into the, into, into the press box during the games on Friday. I don't know. Yeah, we haven't decided, but it might be too much. Because for, you can't use like a bullhorn on the sidelines let, on Friday unless I can get Unless I can get permission to do it. But I don't know if District 3 or the LL League or PIAA would have to improve it. yelling out. With a bullhorn. Yeah. Um, and just I, I'd, I'd probably last a quarter wow. on the field trying to communicate with the kids and the officials and out on the field. Forgive me for being ignorant yeah. of this. Um, just kind of related to that. Like, do you have any trouble drinking liquids no. or eating, no. sleeping? No. Are you more susceptible to getting sick, like sore throats or anything? No. Nope. Okay. No, so but it's, it's just when wow. I talk. Yeah. Wow. No breathing problems and no eating problems. It's just and when it's I talk. Just through the reason that you got it, you mentioned, is just through bad luck. This, yes. And they're basically still trying to figure out. You're essentially a guinea pig right now to figure out what works. Yes, yes, I've said to them on a number um, of occasions. Once you guys get together and sit down with me and write thing? an article, uh, they you, say a lot of a lot of educators have an issue, but I haven't met them. Okay, you know I haven't met them, and they tell me the stuff that they've done with me already has worked on others, but it hasn't worked for me. Mm. So I'm starting to get to the point where this is just something I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of my life. Wow. You know, and I, I turned 39 in a couple of weeks. Would and it I'm ever like, get to the point gotta... where, like, you're not going to be able to talk, like, in 10 or 15 years? Yeah, I'm scared to ask that question. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I guess it's one of those things of, like, if you have cancer or something, like, you don't want to know. Sometimes people don't want to know, like, X number of years that you have to live because then your body starts right. functioning that way and your brain thinks, oh, you know, so then you're you're constantly cautious against that. Whereas if you don't know otherwise, then yeah. you might as well just keep trying. Well, the, one th the one thing is I, I feel bad for others around me because I'm quiet because I, I save my voice for when I have to use it. Mm. So, like, I walk through the hallways at work. And I'm, I just kind of nod or wave and just say hello instead of have a conversation with my colleagues. Mm. So I have to. Well, I'm sorry, man. That. I'm sorry yeah. to make you talk for an hour. Um, yeah. Last thing I want to ask you is yeah. kind of the point of the podcast where I like to ask guests. And you mentioned the five C's earlier, but uh, you know, you're, you've been successful across a lot of different platforms. And I'm curious if you have a certain philosophy or a piece of advice that you can kind of share with people that they can either apply to their lives and make them a better person, or maybe somebody's facing a trial in their life and, and wants advice on how to get over it. And, and you could take that any which way. Yeah. How, how much time do I have? A <laughs> <laughs> uh, couple, a uh, couple, uh, uh, st standards that I'll, I'll say here that I, I try to try to live by. One is the next play mentality, which applies to football and life. Something good or bad happens to you. Mm -hmm. You have to move forward as if it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. You know, like something, you win a, a big game, you win a championship, you, you, your head's in the clouds, all of a sudden you're losing the next one because you're not focused. You know, or you have this hardship in life a girlfriend broke up with you, but yet you're playing a team. Which you and you're, deal and with, and you're, with teenage yes, athletes. Yes, you're, you're playing yeah. a team and your teammates are dependent on you to perform. So you have to have this next play mentality to be able to, to manage personal problems with what you're invested in, your job, your family, your church, your, your program. So that, that's one. Another is daily improvement. So um, education goes a long way with that. So how, are you, how, how do I try to make myself better every day? Um, so whether it's I'm trying to read something um, on a topic, on an issue, to become more educated on the issue, or the coaching profession. All right, what am I doing to become a better coach instead of becoming stagnant? Yes, and I do that same thing with teaching. So, you can't so just professional. Say, oh, I'd like work. to be better at this, and then not put in the work. You got to take steps and, towards. And doing so many that. people yeah. do that. Yeah, so many people do that. Um, so that would be another. And I, I think the last thing is just a kind of a competitive nature that I've developed, both by being involved in sports and also the way that my parents have raised me. Um, you know, like I, I, I kind of, I do what, all these things that I do, and in a way, I'm competing with myself to see if I can outdo what I just did. So if you're asking me about a book, can I write another book that's better and more consequential for American society? Or I had a, you know, we, my coaching staff and I had a successful season. Can we outdo that? Can we work harder and have a better season? Right. Um, uh, it, 
how can I do that to be a better father or a better husband? So I'm always trying to challenge myself too. So I'm not trying to, when I say compete, I'm not always competing against somebody else, but I'm competing against myself. That's awesome. And yeah. I'll get the other book we'll get to here in a second. Um, <laughs> if you guys enjoyed listening to today's podcast, and you'll probably enjoy the previous 84 episodes. So feel free to go back and listen to those in archives. Just last week, we chatted with Warwick alum and former All-American women's soccer defender, Elizabeth Wanger. She just wrapped up a four-year playing career at Georgetown. She's set to begin a pro career overseas. Next week, um, we'll be chatting with Jeff Roth, who is soon set to retire as the Penn Manor Athletic Director after 16 years at the position. Uh, with that being said, I'm always looking for any suggestions for future guests on this show. So if you're listening to think, so if you're listening to this and think, hey, I know this person, they'd be great. Throw me an email, jwalk at lnpnews.com or contact me on the Twitter at jwalklnp. Yeah, Coach, how can uh, people find the book, uh, Glenn Killinger, All-American? Where can they go to get that? Uh, anywhere books are sold, really. But to make it easy, they can they can uh, find it on Amazon or McFarland as a publisher they'll find it on that website as well and you're working on another book what's that about it's a holocaust book so i'm working with a holocaust survivor named linda schwab uh so she didn't survive a camp her family f fled her hometown in miegel poland when the nazis arrived wow. and they fled to the forest where they spent i don't know if you saw the movie defiance with daniel craig Probably. or if any of your listeners have but she she and her family dug a cave and lived in a forest for 18 months wow. Until you know, until the Nazis were defeated by the Soviets, and driven back, and then she was in a displaced persons camp. But anyway, we're working on that story together, and we just finished the the first What's draft. The, the timeline, I guess. Well, we're looking for the publisher now, okay. and uh, so hopefully this time next year, 2019. Wow! Congratulations, yeah. uh, ToddMealy.com, I guess. Yeah, ToddMealy.com. That that's information. Right. All right, yeah. before we wrap up here, I just want to give a shout out to my colleagues Tyler Huber mm -hmm. and Irene Snyder. They are the engineers slash producers of this podcast. Thanks to another colleague, Claudia Espenchate. She gets this thing online, so thanks to them. Thanks to you guys for listening. Coach, thanks for uh, sharing your story, man. Thank you, John. Awesome. Appreciate it. Good job.